Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, Jose Valim's ElixirConf EU keynote is now available online. We've got a link to the playlist where you can see a couple other talks that are also showing up. As of the time of this recording, there's only three in that playlist. I don't know if more are coming or not. But in the beginning of his talk, he promoted the five-part series that we did with him, where we covered the Elixir releases over time. And that was a really fun series we did. It was one episode a month, five parts. And so I got a link to all those in the show notes if you want to catch those. His keynote is really great, though. He goes much deeper in talking about types and how that's a big topic in the community. So if you can check that out, totally recommend it. Yeah, definitely. You got to check it out. If you want to know where Elixir's going, or where Jose's going, rather, you got you to gotta listen to it. Also, follow up from our interview from Sam Aaron and the Sonic Pi project. So we interviewed him a couple episodes ago. He mentioned version 4 was about to release, and... Ta-da, now it has released. This added the major feature of letting multiple nodes in the same network dis- discover each other and connect. That lets people jam together in the same room on their own machines. I remember talking about that with, with Sam. That was, that was a pretty cool feature. Anyway, 4.0 is out, and he's also got thoughts on what the next steps are. So we'll have a couple of links uh, to his thoughts on what version 5 might look like for, for Sonic Pi. And next, Steve Bussey created a Chrome browser extension using LiveView. When I saw that, I was like, a little head explosion. It's like, whoa, I'd never thought about, you know, using Elixir for Chrome extensions. He's built several extensions in the past, typically shipped React apps that live in the extension and are hitting some external API. He said that works great, but he really wanted to cut down the dev time and be able to push small updates without having to publish new versions of the extension and wait for that to roll out to browsers. He's actually doing it with an iframe, and he says that iframe approach gives an initial impression of yuck, but it really is a seamless experience. It feels great, and 98% of the code is in Elixir. You just need a little bit of a JavaScript bootstrapping to handle the interaction with the extension. So he also shares some tips on how to deal with that, and, and some things like cookie auth works best, and using replace true on all links prevents back button issues. So we got a link to the Twitter thread And hopefully we can talk to him more about that and what kind of experience that was and more tips that we can learn from him in the future. All right. Also up in the Livebook world, you may have missed out on the idea of Livebook Pro. I did. I didn't know it existed. Well, it doesn't matter because anyway, they are dropping the idea of Livebook Pro. I I assume this is the thought of like a, a paid route. In place of that, it sounds like they're pursuing an idea called Livebook Hub. And there's also a Livebook Enterprise idea here, too. These two options here, Hub and Enterprise, are team-focused. Jose gave two main reasons for not going the pro route. First, that Livebook can connect to nodes and execute code, which is fine for individual users, but it's a it's kind of a weak security model for teams. And the second reason, they were not really looking forward to deciding which feature was going to land in like Livebook free or open source, I guess, and which one would go into pro, right? So they would be splitting their development effort, right? And have to make that mental decision. This goes into pro, we want money for it. And this one goes into open source where everyone can benefit from it. So I understand those are the two main reasons for not going the pro route. So instead of that, they're going to go the Livebook Hub 
route and the Livebook Enterprise route. Hub is a server for deploying notebooks for teams around the globe. So that's the team-oriented uh, features here. And Livebook Enterprise, I think, is building upon Hub and uh, features your own infrastructure with access control and secret management. Enterprise is Hub, but self-hosted is the way I, I picture that. Ah, gotcha. Yeah, so, so so this resolves their free versus pro dilemma, which is great. So basically, anything that needs a server goes into Livebook Hub and Enterprise, and everything else becomes part of, of Livebook. So if some of that didn't make sense to you, completely understand. But there's a whole website uh, dedicated to Livebook where they're going to explain more, <laughs> and that's livebook.dev. So go to livebook.dev, and they have little buttons there to get more info when they have it. And also be notified when um, when they publish more information about it. So pretty interested to see where that goes, what kind of features are going to require, you know, a, a server. I don't know. What, what do you think, Mark? Like you, I was also like when Jose said that they're not going to do the pro version. I'm like, what? I never even I missed that. I didn't even know that it was a, an idea. But yeah, I am really interested to see where this goes when they say anything that needs a server goes to Livebook Hub and Enterprise and everything else is just regular live book. So I'm like, wow, what, what kind of features are going to require a server? Yeah, this this sounds pretty interesting for like all those other use cases that we've talked about that were like, <laughs> I don't know, didn't I didn't think were, were very like ML focused. And it was more like team documentation or team console fiddling kind of stuff <laughs> in your in your running application, you know, I'm kind of curious where that's going to go. And next up, just a quick follow up. Last week, we mentioned Ecto ERD as a library that uh, was something new that came out, which was a, a mixed task that can run over your project and generate mermaid graphs or, or you know charts that show the relationships of your schemas as an ERD diagram. I said, wow, it's worked great, but it didn't work with umbrellas. Well, I reached out to the maintainer. He was super helpful and very responsive. And I created a PR to update the readme, which really was just, here's how you need to use it with an umbrella. It's a quick follow-up just to let you know that it does work. And the tip is, if you run the mix command in the app directory, it will just work just fine. And so like if I have like a web-focused app and a separate business logic-focused app called Core, and if I run it in my web app, then it picks up all the schemas in there that are, I have like embedded schemas that are around form inputs and validations that aren't actually tied to a database. And because web depends on core, all of the database linked schemas are also picked up because they just show up together in the whole namespace that gets loaded. And so it just worked and did a great job. I think it's a fun project, something worth checking out. Next up, uh, NERVS 1.8 was released. We have a link to the Elixir forum uh, announcement. This is quoting them. This is one of our larger releases in terms of amount of code changed. So we expect it to be a straightforward upgrade for most NERVS users since we focused on documentation and code cleanup. But this new release does require Elixir 1.11 or later. So other big parts of the release that I found was GRISP2 support. If you haven't heard of GRISP2, that is specialized hardware that was developed to be specific to Erlang, running Erlang on, on hardware. So that's really cool to see NERVS get support for that like right out of the box. Also in this release was RISC-V 64-bit support. So that's pretty cool. Talked a little bit more about that earlier, but the TLDR is that RISC-V is this open source hardware approach for CPUs. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. Seems like a great fit for something like NERVS and other uh, Raspberry Pi-like you know, platforms. 
All right, and then lastly, a number of changes and improvements are in the in the change log. They're they're posted in the the Elixir forum. So if you're in the Elix- in the NERS realm, you should definitely go check out the change log. Next up, Elixir LS, the language server and debugger for Elixir, had a new version, version 0.10, which was released. So I checked out the change log, and it is a lengthy list of improvements and changes that cover different sections or parts of the application, like some are VS Code specific, some are around the debugger, some are just around being able to detect a function when it's inside in a string interpolation in a Heeks template or something like that. So there's lots of stuff in there. I think you'll just automatically get it updated as part of the VS Code plugins if that's the way you're consuming this is using VS Code. Did you notice anything else in there? Two things. We talked about it before, so I just want to say that it's in this release. When you're typing out def module, the snippet in there is a little bit better and will like auto-complete your app namespace, you know, instead of some other gobbledygook. <laughs> and then I'm I'm not a VS Code user, but there is a cool like code transformation thing that can happen where you want to like I think we mentioned this before, where you can trade like a, a two pipe in a like from pipe transformation. So if you might start writing something and then you're like, ah, no, I actually need to like do a multi-line piping thing here. So there's a quick way to do a little code action and reformat your code and move the variables in the places that need to go. So it's smart about that. But this is a good release. But that's that, those are the big ones that I, I saw. Most of it seems to be about bug fixes, crash fixes, better alias resolutions and stuff like that. All right, next up, not about Elixir, but Phoenix applications typically are paired with Postgres. If you're in that realm using Postgres, you might be interested in Postgres 15. Postgres 15, I think, is still in beta at the time of this recording. But one of the things that's coming up in Postgres 15 is a new unique nulls not distinct option. All right, so we'll have a link that goes into more details on what this is, but this is pretty helpful on indexes with unique constraints. This typically captures it like hits me by surprise like I, I i know what's going on but it's like after the fact and then i have to like redo the index or something and and rewrite the constraint but there's a way that you can say i, I need like emails unique or something like that and the way that that typically works as per the sql ANSI standard so this isn't like should this shouldn't be a surprise but it's just like a surprise practically speaking to me null values is treated like any other value so you can only have one null value in the, uh, as part of that constraint and there wasn't like a straightforward way to like get around that now there there is in postgres 15 there's the the unique nulls not distinct option so if you just plug that onto the constraint creation command there what that's going to do is it's going to not care about nulls so nulls won't be considered a value anymore so if you you know you can have multiple null emails at that point or whatever your use case might be Anyway, so you might be interested in that Postgres, you know, like Elixir and all the libraries that we typically talk about and Ecto, it evolves just as quickly as the rest of the world. So Postgres 15 looks like a good one to look forward to. And I, I think that there's other good stuff coming up in Postgres 15. So tune in uh, next couple of episodes and I'm sure we'll have some other cool things that are coming out in Postgres. And next up, the Ash framework, which is really headed up by Zach Daniel. We actually interviewed him in episode 27 way back when, and we got a better picture of what the Ash framework is. Well, the big news here is there's a new release and it's coming out of beta. It's ambitious in what it goes about handling. And the idea that it's now coming out of beta is maybe something that would give people greater confidence for trying it out now and saying, yeah, maybe this is something I'm ready to depend on. 
So congrats to him in the, the long road that has brought him here to this point where he's feeling comfortable and good about this and saying, hey, it's going to be coming out of beta. So there's also a link in the show notes where you can check out more of what's coming up in this release, but that's it. All right, last up, Elixir Conf 22. Reminder that it is a hybrid conference, so you don't have to purchase the expensive travel and hotel stays and all that kind of stuff. You can get the cheaper online-only ticket. Going physically is going to be cool, too. It is Lazy River there, lots of water parks and cool restaurants. I'm going to try to be there physically, mind, body, and soul over there. So a reminder, it is happening. It's around the corner. August 30th and 31st are training days. So if you want to get some training on like Live View or Nerves, that's going to be a good option for you in person, right? And then on September 1st and the 2nd are the actual conference days. So we'll drop a link to register there. But this is the, you know, the premier Elixir Conf conference, all things Elixir. So if you can't make it physically, that's okay. They got an online option. So go check that out, that option out. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today, we're going to join together and talk a little bit more about the Stack Overflow results survey, because that was an interesting thing that kind of unexpectedly made a splash in the Elixir community. We knew that Elixir and Phoenix were being featured as more prominent choices because like in years past, it it was like, a I think you had to write it in or something. It wasn't even something that was an option for choosing. And so now, okay, it's up there and then... We were like, oh, a little bit surprised. I, I was, frankly, I was surprised at how well it did. But yeah, so we want to take a little bit of time just to talk with each other about what we see from that, what we think it means, how we're interpreting it, and what we think uh, that means for the future, and just kind of whatever we think we can glean from it. Yeah, let's start with like Elixir first, because there's two big results out of this. I'll just quickly say what the results were, is that Elixir was the number two most loved language. And that the Phoenix framework was the number one most loved web framework. Okay, so let's start with the, the Elixir one first. What do you think most loved means? I think it means you're using it and you like it. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and you participated in the survey. And you participated in the survey. So it's a small subset of all the people in the world. Astute uh, observation. Okay. <laughs> Any other questions? <laughs> yeah. So the first thing I think is just realizing it is a proportion of the people who said, answered anything about Elixir. Did they like it or dislike it? We have a link to the, the survey results in the show notes. One of the things that we were looking for that David was keen to check for is looking for the raw data because in years past, they have released the raw actual input data, I guess, that went into computing these, these results. But we don't have that yet. We don't, we don't have it in spreadsheet form, at least, but they have a lot of like data on, on the site. So you, you just kind of have to like hover over things to see it. So like going through Elixir, the stat is that 75%, I'll just round, 75% of users loved Elixir and about 25% did not 
like it, like dreaded it, right? So when they heard the word Elixir and maybe they, maybe their boss is like, hey, we're going to have to write this, you know, service in Elixir, 25% of people, one out of four are going to be like, oh no, Elixir, I don't want to write that. Mm -hmm. That was a little bit surprising. You know, I don't come across a lot of folks that are like, oh no, I don't want to write Elixir. That's one in four. So I want to know a little bit more about that. I I don't know if I'll ever will. I'm actually kind of surprised. I mean, I'm in a bubble, obviously, so maybe I shouldn't be so surprised, but I'm, I'm a little surprised at one out of four. Maybe I should broaden my horizons. Now, and now to compare, Rust, Rust is number one. That's 87% loved versus 13% dreaded. That's quite a jump. That's quite a spread. Like number one to number two is quite a spread. And then all the way down, it's just kind of, you know, a couple, per, couple points off of each other, right? But... Rust is way up there. I don't know. What's interesting is like the number of responses between those two as well, right? Mm-hmm. Is there a button to change? There's not. So you have to hover over it. And so it's like you look at Elixir and it's like 75% loved Rust, 86% loved. But if you hover over it, it's like Elixir, 1,100 responses went into that 75%. And for Rust, 5,700 went into that response. So not only is it more overwhelmingly loved... There's 5x more respondents who willing to fill in the rust. So was it optional? How, what was the input format? Could you choose which languages you wanted to say you loved and dreaded? Yeah, if I remember right, because I, I did participate in the survey. And you could just like, you could pass on, it's like, I never use Elix- Elixir, so I'm going to pass on that one. Yeah. So you didn't have to, yeah, check it. So 5x people felt like they could respond to rust. Right. What I think is also worth just looking at is just by looking at the the loved and dreaded for Elixir, we can get a, a rough idea. It's about 1,500 people that in total said they were using Elixir that participated in the survey. So it just gives us an idea of sense of scale. 1,500 versus Rust 6,500. So like the spread here of like total participants in the survey isn't that huge. Like that, I mean, 5X, sure, that's that's a good, that's a good number, right? That's, a, that's quite a spread. But... We're not talking about 1,500 versus 100,000, right? So the, the sample size here is pretty consistent. Like if I scroll down to like Closure, who was number three, the total responses there was just over 1,000 people. That's not a lot. If you look at TypeScript, number four, that's that's like 24,000, you know, people. That That's, I'm, I'm going to guess here. Oh, oh, wow, it's not the top. Yeah, Python has like 34,000 something yeah, SQL is kind of up there too, which is not a surprise. HTML and CSS is up there too, not a surprise. And this, and I'm talking about total responses, but there's a ton of these, like like Scala, like that's there's there's not a lot of those. APL made the list. I don't even know what that is, but there's like a handful of people that <laughs> answered that one. Lisp, you know, F sharp, you know the. So I guess the point I'm trying to make here is like. The sample size of people that chose to respond about Elixir is not abnormal. So I think this is a fair shake of how folks are actually feeling about Elixir, at least compared to the other languages that made it up on the board here. So we talked about loved versus dreaded, but I also kind of want to talk about want because like Rust is 87% loved, but it's also the top wanted language. It's 17-ish percent. And you have to scroll down to find Elixir over, you know, down on the list at around 3%, which, to be fair, is in like the top third 
that's a pretty small percentage there. Like that's, that's still 3% versus 17%. This is where my concern comes in is that yes, Elixir is loved by three out of four people, but only 3% of people want to go learn it. Let me clarify what want means. It's the percentage of people who are not developing the language, but expressed interest in developing with it. So this is squarely on the people that have no exposure to Elixir. So love versus dread, that's people with exposure to Elixir. But want is 0%, you know, exposure to Elixir and want to learn. This is the part I'm a little concerned about. What do you guys think? I think this is where it's interesting to come back to the relative size of the communities, because we're talking about how Rust and Python and TypeScript, which which hold the top three in the want area, all three at 17% of different amounts of 17%. But those communities were large. It defaults to the percentage view. If you look at the number of responses view, and then you look at Elixir, you see that 3% turns into 2,150. And that is, if you said all of those people started using Elixir, who said they want to, then that's like doubling the size of our community compared to the people who participate in the survey who are already using it. That's a good observation. (laughs) That's great. Something that I think is interesting is that they're very, like the want is very closely related with the love versus dreaded and like the, the size of the community that participated, right? So in the love versus dread, like Rust had about 5x number of responses compared to Elixir. And it seems like the number of people who want Rust is about 5x the number of people who expressed interest in Elixir. So just it, it almost just feels like the want is just like a really good correlation of like the size of the community or like in business terms, it's like how much money they're pumping into marketing. It's like there's a lot of marketing material out there for Python and Rust and Go and TypeScript, these are the top four on the wanted. And there's probably not as much for Elixir and Haskell. I don't know if I can make the statement about all of these things on here because like Ruby's down here pretty low, but there's there's a ton of content on the internet for Ruby. And but I don't know, just it just feels like the Rust community is huge and everybody knows about Rust. Lots of people who don't use Rust express interest to use Rust. The Elixir community isn't as big. I don't know, a fifth of the people who like who want to use Rust, want to use Elixir. One of the things I think is most interesting as a side effect of this was I was started seeing people on Twitter saying, hey, it was because of the Stack Overflow results that I started, I decided to check out Elixir. It just, that it just raised the awareness. Remarketing. Yeah, it really it was. <laughs> it just made it so people saw it who weren't previously aware of it. Because honestly... In the Elixir community, that's one of the things I think we can talk more about later, but I think we don't do a great job of marketing, just talking and being very public and out there about what the benefits that we're seeing and why other people should try it. Things like this help other people to discover Elixir where they might have just not even known about it before. When I think about languages, I think about what languages are typically used for. You know, when I think about data science, I, I, I think about Python still. When I think about low-level programming or systems programming, I, I tend to think about Rust or C or, or Go. When I think about you know front-end programming, obviously it's TypeScript and JavaScript. When I think about mobile development, it's probably Kotlin and Swift. Interestingly, Swift is not very high on the on the wanted list here, but but Kotlin is. When I think about Elixir, I can't peg it into one area, right? So when I think about like developers that might be answering this the survey. 
you know, they're, they're presented with the question, what languages do I want to uh, want to learn? They might actually be doing it with what area of programming do I want to learn? And then I'm just going to pick the language that's typically associated with that. So like I, I, I don't do any data science now. I'm happy with my current web bait, you know, web oriented programming language like Ruby or Java or something like that. And I need to do some some data science. I need to pick up Python. I want to learn Python. Right. Do you think there's any of that kind of thought that's that might be influencing some of this, too? I, I, I agree with your, what you're saying, too, is that it, it might also just be correlating with the size of the existing communities now. But I wonder if that has anything to do with it. It's interesting because I remember when Swift first came out, there was this idea being bandied around that saying, oh, you can actually code your server application in Swift because it's an open source language and it could be cross compiled and, and and no one does that. It is a good observation to tie a lot of these things to the platform that they're running with. So Rust, low level language, right? I'm probably not going to write my web server in Rust for serving up like a blog. Some people do. <laughs> One of the other things that the Stack Overflow survey covers is developer profile, like junior, senior, mid-level, years in the, in the industry, that kind of thing. We don't have any way to tie that information to these languages either. I believe that the Elixir community is more heavily weighted towards senior developers, but we can't actually prove that with this view of the data. If we ever actually get the raw data, like respondent level data that's anonymized, then we could actually pull and tease that stuff out. It's like how many of the people who have been coding professionally for less than a year picked Elixir versus one to four years versus five to nine years. Mm -hmm. And if it's your first language, what are you probably going to go with? Like if you're wanting to do mobile development, you know, it's like, oh, it's going to be Swift. 55 people said they've been coding for more than 50 years, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) They're probably not on Stack Overflow very often either. (laughs) Did they pick Elixir? This is the question. Unfortunately, we didn't get enough respondents, but there's a there's a nice little graph here of developers and what languages they are currently working in, and then relationships to what languages they want to go learn. It's, it's a circle graph, and there's a bunch of lines that kind of connect to, you know, the outline of it is a bunch of other other languages, and so portions of it would be like a pie graph, for example. Portions of it would be like TypeScript, and then they would have that big part of TypeScript kind of divvy up and connect to other languages and then you can see what you know what the relationships are so so for example like typescript and sql are probably you know the one of the larger pieces of the pie here because well pretty much any language that you need to learn you know like java php typescript whatever if you're going to interact with the database you probably need to know sql as well so there's a lot of relationships with sql and all the other languages but unfortunately elixir is not not on here because we didn't have enough respondents to their Stack Overflow's wisdom to make these connections reliably. But Rust is on there. So like you can see that Rust has a lot of good connections with TypeScript, SQL, Python, JavaScript, and Bash and Shell. But like almost nothing with C Sharp, C++, Go, Java, and PHP. You can make a correlation there that if you already have you know, one of those other languages, C Sharp, C++, Go, one of the other systems languages, you're probably not as interested in learning Rust. But these other complementary you know, languages here, those have a lot more connections. And I, th- I, I think that supports the theory that like, you know, we, we still slot languages into what the perception of, uh, the, the, the perception of what they're good at. 
So if you're in JavaScript now, which is a huge pool of developers, because that's probably an entry level, you know, um, language, a, a lot like Ruby, Ru- for what it's worth, Ruby's also not on this. That's a huge pool of things. If you're wanting to to, to expand your skills, to, uh, for what it's worth, JavaScript's got to connect with like every other language on here. So I can't make a, I can't make a judgment here, but but you're going to expand in into these other you know these other areas. I mean, it makes good sense. Like you'll have a backend. Typically, you'll have a single backend, and then you'll have JavaScript for the front end to a certain extent. So uh, it's it's obvious that JavaScript connects to every single, literally every single other language on this unnamed type of chart. It doesn't make as much sense that like Go would have a connection with every other. It's like if you have Go, you know, you might have one other backend because like it seems like every company is like in the middle of of migrating from one language to another. So it's like all of these backend ones might have a connection with one or two others. Typically, you'll just have one backend, right? And so it makes sense that like Go has a connection with JavaScript and HTML. And it makes sense that like PHP has a connection with JavaScript and HTML and TypeScript and SQL. And all of the backends are like that, right? And then since everybody wants to use Rust, it seems like Rust has a connection with most of these backends too. So they're all mid-migration to Rust or they're using Rust as a NIF of some kind. I mean, it makes sense that like JavaScript and HTML are like, they're connected to everything. Like you're going to, you can't get away from writing HTML if you're doing any kind of web, anything web related, right? But if you look at like C++ programmers, they don't have any connection to any of those web languages. They, the, the strongest connection it has is to Python. And I would bet that probably has to do with like data modeling and machine learning and stuff like that. Let's move on and talk about Phoenix, because I think that's the other thing that kind of surprised us just in the results. So this was under the loved and dreaded for web frameworks and technologies. Yeah. And so, so we talked about uh, Rust and, and Elixir before. Rust was like 87% loved or something, right? And then the next one was Elixir, and it was, there was a far spread at, at 75%. So there's like a, you know, like an 8% spread there. Phoenix is the most loved web framework currently of, of those that responded. And it has a similar spread to number two, which is Svelte in this case. And Phoenix is sitting at 80, I'll say 83%, and Svelte is sitting at 75%. The raw data on this is... Mm, a little over a thousand, uh, let's say, let's just say 1200 people. There's 1200 people, you know, using Phoenix that, that said that they love it. And 200 of those people said that they don't want to <laughs> write, write Phoenix anymore. So that's a roughly uh, 16, 16% of them uh, say that they don't, they don't like Phoenix as much. Um, but that is incredible because like Phoenix was not on the list before. <laughs> I don't think, right? I don't remember seeing it on, on previous Stack Overflow results here. So it's pretty cool to see it, you know, for the first time I th- that I'm remembering anyway. And then it jumping right up to number one. I, I like the fine print here, which is, so these are web frameworks and web technologies that you've done extensive development work in over the past year. And then the second question, which is the want to and which do you want to work with over the next year is what that question was. So if you want to work on it in like 2024, you're not allowed to say you want it. You have to want it in the next year. But what's interesting is like you you needed to have done extensive development work in it. So we've got 1,200 people or so, like you said, that have done extensive work in the last year in Phoenix and a vast majority of them loved it. That seems good. 
I remember earlier days of Phoenix, there was some perspectives of people coming from Rails community. And in Rails, there were more options to say, oh, we want something super lightweight. We want something like Sinatra as an alternate web framework. That was just a lot less that it was doing for you. So with Phoenix, there was some pushback originally thinking, oh, Phoenix is big and bloated. And then as people started to actually work with it and realize what it's actually doing, what's not doing and how it all wires up because it's not all magic, then you realize, oh, it's it's really lightweight and it still enables a lot of customization. So I think people really have been happy with Phoenix and we haven't seen a, a need for people to create alternate frameworks. Looking at the loved and dreaded though, I have to just kind of laugh at the bottom. The lowest one is Angular. <laughs> 20, 20, 21 to 79. Yeah, that's that's pretty rough. Yeah, and it's about 4,000, close to 5,000 respondents. Well, let's let's clarify, though. That's AngularJS versus Angular Modern, which is about 50-50, which is not that great. But I missed that memo. They, they renamed from AngularJS to Angular. Yeah, like a long time ago. So we're we're talking about like Angular one, maybe Angular two. So that's 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 kind of low. I'm, it probably shouldn't even be on the list because that I can see how that would be confusing. <laughs> yeah, a- Angular adopted TypeScript a while ago, and so they removed the the JS part of it just to differentiate. And it was alongside of a, a huge rewrite. I think my history on it on it's a little fuzzy, but. Yeah, AngularJS and Angular are, are, that's old versus modern Angular. I was an early adopter of the first Angular, like Angular 1 point something, AngularJS. It was terrible and I hated it and we you know, couldn't rip it out fast enough. It was incredible as a proof of concept, like, wow, look what you can do. And then once you got to anything of a complexity and scale of like where a lot was going on, then it was just buggy as all get out and <laughs> it became really slow and just poor performance. So then we ended up moving to React. Actually, we went to Ember next. Yeah. But then React.js. Yep. <laughs> so, okay. We had some interesting things that we observed from this, but really, I think it comes back to what do we think this means? And anecdotally, I think I've just observed that Elixir tends to be people's third and fourth language. The reason I think that is, is they come to programming and they're doing, uh, maybe they come through a a coding bootcamp. Maybe they come through something that the friend recommended. Maybe it's uh, just through a college program. And then you're learning things like Java and C Sharp and things like that. You get out into industry and you start using whatever's there. And then at some point you realize I'm having all these problems. I'm dealing with these bugs with state where it's really difficult to debug these nested object oriented, you know, objects where as I make this method call, something else is changing deep in a tree and I'm getting all these bugs and this is hard. And oh, now I'm trying to do concurrency and threads. Oh man, that's really messy. It's impossible to debug occasional errors that happen in threading. People get into that kind of a situation and that's when they start looking for something else that can help. And I think that's how people are finding Elixir. Another observation I'm, I'm seeing this is, is that we touched on it earlier, but I'll say it again. It's the, it's the part where once you find your main language, I think the way that you try to grow yourself is to go into an area of programming that you're not as familiar with. And you start learning those languages that are typically coupled with that idea. So Python with machine learning, for example, Rust or C++ or Go for like lower level systems programming. 
right? Web is going to be JavaScript, HTML, and all that jazz. But once you've gotten your main language, maybe your your first language, you don't really branch out. It is it's that's what it looks like to me on Stack Overflow at least. Which means that I think that the first language that you that you learn is probably the one you're going to stick with for a, a while. Which means that you know if Elixir is a good like third fourth language, that's pretty late. That's pretty late in the life cycle of, of a developer. That's really hard work to convince you know developers that that this other thing is is maybe a good like first generic you know uh, all encompassing like good language to do a lot of things with versus your you know the first language that you learned. And so I think um, maybe one thing that could help Elixir's growth for those folks is earlier exposure to Elixir. And that's going to come out of college courses. That's going to come out of boot camps. That's going to come out of online tutorials. I think that's going to have a, a huge impact, online tutorials in, in Elixir, you know, a, a entry-level programmer, or like how do I build a website with Elixir? You know, stuff that you would think is just like really basic and boring for, for intermediate and, and veteran developers. That's still really important stuff to have material available for, for juniors. That, I think that could be one thing that we do differently is make more of an effort to get entry-level material up for Elixir folks. I think we have that problem with the books that are available. Most of them are that intermediate to beginning advanced range. It is a, a different perspective to help people into Elixir as a first language. But I think we can do that regionally where we are. We can go and visit with other meetups, other groups, other languages. Like, hey, if there's a functional programming general meetup. We can go there and talk about uh, functional programming and how Elixir fits in there. I think we can be welcoming and inviting to people to come to our meetups, answer their questions, help get them set up with a development environment and work out any issues they have just for getting started. Yeah, I think you're right. I think Jose kind of had the, a similar response when he when he talked about the survey results, which is just like, we need to be welcoming new developers into the community different experience levels. And then he called out, you know, a few things like live book dev, dockyard, Ryan Biggs books are, are helping these companies and these people are helping onboarding and hiring and new developers. So. And maybe not all for loss, you know, the, the just exposure on the stack overflow developer survey is exposing the fact that Elixir is pretty well loved and that Phoenix is pretty, really well loved. I, I came across a tweet of somebody who's, you know, is starting to look at look at elixir because they it just popped up on the on the survey and they're like what is this why is it so loved we're doing well it's not like we're maliciously lacking in some areas i think our community is doing really well in being vocal and open we tend not to bash other languages or frameworks because we know that that's not productive because a lot of folks that are working in elixir now know other languages and also have like appreciations for those other languages I think it's going to be a matter of time, but some effort uh, in that early material, I think, is going to be really helpful. I'm glad we had a chance to talk through the Stack Overflow results. It was surprising, and I didn't expect Elixir to do quite as well of a showing. I was thinking, oh, we'll probably just kind of start edging up a little bit. The degree that it is appreciated by those who use it, I think, is wonderful. And then what I got from the want section is that if that were to happen, and if we just took this as a sample size, a relative sample size, then we are potentially ready to double the community size of active participants in the next year, which I think would be fabulous. 
So I guess my takeaway and encouragement to all of you out there, dear listeners, is to be welcoming and encouraging to those that you encounter, those that you work with, that are working, you know, you work with people who are on the front end team, you work with people that are in other departments, might be working with different languages, just be welcoming and encouraging and and help share that Elixir is something that you really enjoy. We'd love to hear from you what your takeaways are so you can reach out to us. You can find us on Twitter. Check out the show notes for ways to contact us. But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. (laughs) 